You're listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro Cook. Today, I'm joined by author, publisher, and philanthropist, Lisa Greer, who's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Philanthropy Revolution, and posts one of the most poignant and brilliant philanthropy newsletters called Philanthropy 451. And if you're not yet a subscriber of it, I highly recommend it because it's some of the most relevant content on a daily or weekly basis and when that's released. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm super curious to hear your backstory and what it was that led you to being the voice in philanthropy that you are today. So I was not always a donor or a philanthropist. Um, I came from, I would say, modest, average middle-class means, volunteered where I could and gave where we could, but it was, it was always a very kind of a difficult thing. And I was sort of a paycheck to paycheck person until I was in my, uh, well, actually until about 10 years ago, when I sold my company, I, I had a company in the fertility business and my husband sold, um, my husband's company went public and then he left uh, that company about a year later after it had a successful IPO. And we found ourselves in a position where we had money and a few, a m- couple months before that, we sat down and said, okay, if this thing happens and it looks like we're going to have all of a sudden become wealthy people, where do we want that money to go? That was really our first conversation. A lot of people said it should have been, what kind of jewelry am I going to buy? But I'm not that kind of person. So it was really about where do we want to donate money and what kind of philanthropist do we want to be? And so we decided over that next month, month and a half, as my husband was doing a roadshow and the company was going public, we decided that we would each pick something. Our very first time, we would each pick an organization that we want to donate to. At that point, I had been uh, the president of our synagogue. I was involved in a lot of volunteer effort, but really we were mostly, had mostly been working until then. And so uh, we both decided to pick, each pick something that we wanted to donate to, and then we would quit our jobs. He left his piece, and then soon after that, uh, and we decided that we would really not work for the first time in our lives and we would become philanthropists. So when I did that, we had our first experience was pretty strange. We decided that we sat down and we said, what's important to you for each of us? And I decided I wanted to give my money to um, our synagogue. I was very involved in it, as I said, and we were finishing a capital campaign. So uh, we were finishing a restoration of our sanctuary. It was done by a a well-known architect. And I thought, you know what, that's something I really want to do. And I remember growing up that my father's name was on a plaque at a synagogue that he had gone to. And I remember being really little and him taking us over to go see the plaque. And also his father, name was on there too because his father had been president of that synagogue and I thought that's really meaningful definite real thing and I also came up a lot of my career my husband's career were in digital media and the idea of having these plaques it felt real or supporting a building felt real it wasn't supporting a company that was ephemeral but it was a real thing so we decided that's where my money would go because the capital campaign needed a a lot of money it was about a million dollars they needed in order to complete their campaign and consider it finished so we decided we would do that and my husband husband said, I said, what are you going to do, honey? And he said that uh, we, we knew that he's always had Crohn's disease. He'd been sick since he's been about 11 years old. And he was, when we had children, he was very concerned and asked the doctor that, is there anything we can do to make sure that our children and other children don't have this horrible disease. So my husband decided that he, um, we, we, we talked about it and I said, you, know, you really should do something in Crohn's disease. It's always been very important to you to make sure that no other child ever had to go through what he had to go through. He had a very bad case, which he still has Crohn's disease and he had lots of surgeries. 
we said, let's go find out who does the very best research on Crohn's disease to make sure that children don't get it, that people don't get it. And wherever that is, we want to donate. But he had gone, so we thought Stanford was going to be the place. And we started poking around there and did some research to find out if that was the right place. And this is all about a month before we became wealthy. And I called some people at Cedars because uh, our local major hospital where Josh has had many, many surgeries over the last 30 years. And I said, do you guys have Actually, I didn't even check it. I didn't call them first. I just looked online and I found out that they actually were doing some research and they did do a lot of work with Crohn's disease. So I called, so I made two phone calls. And uh, if you get the book, you'll, you'll hear these two stories. But the first one that I did, and remember, I'm a business person. I had worked at the studios. My husband and I are serial entrepreneurs. We had started companies. We had worked at companies, both corporate and otherwise. And all of a sudden we're philanthropists. And I make two phone calls and I call the head of the synagogue and we called the development office at Cedar sinai We actually went, we found somebody on the board who introduced us to the head of development at Cedars that we were supposed to talk to. And so we, I followed that along. And in both cases, we were kind of told that we weren't wanted, that it wasn't something that they wanted to participate in because they didn't know us. We weren't a known entity. We weren't people who had donated all our lives. We weren't on lots of other lists. And therefore we were suspect, despite the fact that this was public information that we had come into this money, but nobody looked. And to this day, I hear this story over and over and over again, even in the last week, where people saying that well, somebody's approached us, we don't know if they really have money. And then I say to them, well, you can look online, there's an online resource supported by the government that will tell you exactly who has stock and exactly who's going public. And yet I have not found a development officer yet. I think I found one out of a hundred uh, who actually even knew how to do that. So in the case of the, the hospital, it took us seven months to have them accept our money. I called over and over and over again, tried kept keep moving it forward. They kept trying to just show us numbers and thinking we're going to go away. We didn't discuss numbers at all. They didn't even want to discuss, as most uh, fundraisers do, they don't ever want to talk about money. It makes them nervous. So it's supposed to be this hush-hush thing. So they sent us these, this proposal with these big numbers. And I said, great, let's proceed. And they didn't believe me. And they still didn't believe us for seven months. So the good news about that piece is that it was botched so badly that the person left Cedars shortly thereafter, after we made our contribution, it was um, $2 million. We actually endowed a chair at Cedar sinai And uh, for seven months, they wouldn't take our money. But I'm happy to say, and this is in the book as well, that Cedars has now made that entire situation part of their onboarding process for all of their development people in the entire hospital, because they realized that is a teachable moment and that they wanted their people to learn from that so that it never happens to anybody again. On the synagogue side, we called my friend who ran the synagogue and I said, this is about to happen. I want to let you know, assuming everything goes well, we would like to contribute the final million dollars to the capital campaign. And she said to me, I don't know what to say. And I said, what do you mean you don't know what to say? You can say thank you. And she said, I'm really confused because I didn't make an ask. And I said, what does that mean? I don't understand because you didn't make a form last year. Yeah, we're supposed to do this whole thing and we have meetings and we have plans and we have whatever. So I don't know what to say. And I thought that was the strangest thing ever. So on top of it, when I hung up the phone and said, you can just say, thank you. This is happening. Goodbye. You know, I thought that was a really weird reaction. And about 10 seconds went by and then she called back and asked for my husband. Yeah, she didn't believe that even though we were really, really good friends, she didn't believe that anyone could possibly just all of a sudden call without a formal ask and say, I'm going to give you a million dollars. So it was shocking. And I thought, and so Josh and I looked at that and we said over the next few months, we've just been dropped like aliens into this weird world. And what is this? And they don't seem to act normally. Why is that? I don't understand. And so it was very, very strange. And so the more that we continued and we joined 
organizations and community foundations and we gave money to different things and we became part of boards, we realized that a lot of basic business tenets that we were used to, as well as a lot of just normal, good practice, say thank you kinds of things, didn't happen in the world of philanthropy and fundraising. And to this day, I can't actually figure out why, but I decided that I was determined to change it and I was going to speak up. I suppose we were able to see it more than people grew up in families that were philanthropic because we were we kind of have some objectivity and we're able to see that this crazy thing was going on. So we decided, uh, and, and then I decided, my husband's uh, yet doing another uh, startup right now, but uh, we did decide that, um, that I was going to try and change it and try and let people know from a donor's point of view, what does it feel like when you want to give somebody millions of dollars and they ignore your phone calls? So that's why, how this whole thing was born. It's a true story, but it's an unbelievable story because, you know, myself as an executive director, we're always trying to find individuals who will give. And then when you have a, an established organization, just the idea that they wouldn't jump on a significant aspect. And it, it's really admirable that not only did that happen to you and you just accepted it and then gave, but actually going out and with the desire and the passion and the intelligence to change the way individuals act and behave with individuals such as yourself and your husband. What is it that drove you to want to actually publish a book? It's a tremendous amount of work of time and self and that could be spent on other things. What was it that was your, besides that experience, what was your primary internal driver that said, I actually need to, to do this? Most fundraisers really have no idea how donors think and they make assumptions, but they really don't know. They're, and they're so anxious to raise money because everybody's always up against the wall and everybody's always trying to make budget that they don't really think, how does this feel to the other person? And I think they really do believe that donors are an alien being. I actually think, and this is kind of sad, I realized that I, I thought this, that I really believe that if you had a hundred, and I, I hope this isn't true, but that if you had a hundred nonprofit leaders or professional fundraisers and you asked them like an online survey where they were certain you'd never know their name and who they were, and you said, look, nobody will know who you are, but here's our one question. Do you think donors are stupid? I actually think that most of them would say yes. And that's a real problem when people think that and yet are asking people for money. It's not a good combination and it's not respectful and it's, you're not realizing the other, the other person on the other line of the phone is a, is a human being or in front of you. And you don't really, if, as a fundraiser, if you really think the donors are stupid and they're just somebody, their checkbook or they're just somebody to get money out of, then this whole idea of you want to have a relationship with them or a relationship uh, building related to fundraising, it really doesn't mean anything because talking to somebody and kind of pandering to them and saying, oh yes, oh, and just say yes, yes, yes to them. Everything they say, oh yes, that's lovely. Oh yes, oh, that's just wonderful. And can we please have a check? That's not a relationship. So what happened is this was going on almost daily for me for a couple of years, several years. And I had all sorts of experiences. And so what I used to do is I would get up in the morning and I would get an email that was written to, supposed to be written to me, sent to me, but it actually said, dear Sophie or some other name, or it was in five different colors and different fonts. And it was basically give me your money or somebody called on the phone and said, will you return my call? I'm from the XYZ organization, please call me. And I thought, why would I call? you. I don't know anything about you. And I'm, I know you're just going to ask me for money. So why would I do that? So I used to get in the car and call friends. I would be on my way to work or whatever it is I was doing. And I would call friends and say, I can't believe this terrible thing that happened. You wouldn't believe how awful they were. This person didn't even say thank you. 
And then my friends got a little tired of it and I decided it wasn't fair to my friends to do that. So then I started recording all of these into uh, my phone. And so I would be driving in the morning and I'm taking my kids to school or I'm going to a board meeting and I would still, still same thing. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be angry. And then I thought, wait a minute, this isn't helpful. I've got all of this information now. I've got these recordings. I've got friends who say, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And they actually mean it. But wouldn't it be great to actually, again, my husband and I are serial entrepreneurs, our world is trying to help people solve things. Wouldn't it be nice if we then apply that to trying to solve fundraising and how do people actually fundraise and point out to people that there is a different way to do it. So uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take all of that kind of anger and frustration and create a, a, a kind of turn it into something that's good and positive and that really helps other people understand who are in it, all these nonprofits that we love and those we don't even know about, but really to help them succeed. And the byproduct of it is we found out that as we started mentioning this to other donors that I was thinking about doing this book, every single donor we talked to, no matter how old they were, no matter what part of the world they were in, they first said, oh, no, we're, we're fine. We think not, you know, fundraising people are great. And then after I asked them a couple of times and said, really, are you sure? you've Because you know, I had this happen to me. Every single one then said, oh, I had this horrible thing happen. I just didn't want to tell anybody. And so what it kind of ends up being is that I think donors, I think donors are afraid to say anything because I think they believe that, you know, why should we bitch? We have money. It's not our role to bitch. Or why should we even take the time to teach somebody because these people are asking us for money. So we'll just not give them money and that will be our way of teaching them. And I said, well, that's not really teaching them. That's just saying that. So I decided that I was going to make the next three years of my life interviewing people throughout this entire kind of philanthropic world and getting different opinions and then figuring out how to make a guidebook so that there's a new way of teaching uh, fundraising. You mentioned your family and, and your children in this and knowing you on a personal level, I know that it's really important for your children to also be involved with social justice and philanthropy and other sides. What did those, I know the purpose of your book is to impact fundraisers, but yeah. like your life is really dedicated to your children, what role or what are your hopes for next generation, both with this book and actually in your home? So I think at the beginning, my kids were, my older kids, I've got five kids. My older kids were um, really not happy about the way that we were treated by a lot of the different institutional nonprofits, starting at the ones we've discussed. But, uh, but they really, they were like, why are you doing this, mom? Why don't you just, you know, and, and do what Lots and lots of other wealthy people do, which is put your money in a donor advice fund and just say, forget it. I'm not going to talk to anybody. Or what was recommended to us, we put all the calls through our attorney and we refused to talk to nonprofits. But I kind of liked learning about nonprofits. And with our kids, they, they did a lot of, um, they, were, they have always done a lot of work at nonprofit work. My little ones um, are just sort of starting. But one of the things that I did is I opened a donor advice fund for everyone. And uh, my kids at that point, the youngest ones were about five, and uh, uh, the oldest was a teenager. And we said, we really want you to learn how do you look at different organizations and how do you decide what to donate to. And so my deal with them is that we put money in the account every year. And then at the end of the year, by the end of the year, they have to have spent the money um, and given it to something that they've researched. And if they haven't spent it, then we, that's fine. It just goes into the next year, but we won't put any more in. But if they have spent it, we'll refill the account for the amount that they, uh, that they donated. 
And it was interesting with each of the different kids, how they dealt with it. The little kids wanted to get something for their donation. They wanted to get a teddy bear because they donated, or they wanted to, you know, whatever that was. And that's, that's okay when you're five or six or seven years old. The older kids were pretty uncomfortable about the whole thing and a little bit distrusting about nonprofits. And we had had a number of, because of those initial situations and because of a lot of other situations, you know, people coming to our house, we've done hundreds of salons uh, hosting different nonprofits, including yours. And occasionally we would have somebody who would hang out after the event. We've now spent a thousand or more dollars on putting together an event, bringing people there. We always have lovely food and drink and caterers. And uh, at least twice, if not three times, people have said they refused to leave till we gave them a check. And that was really, just seemed really rude. You know, my kids would be little ones would be sleeping upstairs and I've just taken time away from them. I don't get to say goodnight because I'm doing an event. And literally people who just, they just said, I can't leave. That's my job. And I really need to get a check from you. And I thought, I just gave you, I tried to make it exponential. I tried to put a thousand dollars in or more so that we could end, then have 30 people who then can then ask, you know, they can then donate and they can have their friends donate. And isn't that better than me just giving you a check? And they couldn't, understand, and this happened even recently, they couldn't understand anything other than that was every, the, the salon and I think the relationship and everything was noise. The only thing that was important was, can I have a check? Which by the way, I don't carry a checkbook and haven't for years. So even the saying, can I have a check makes me laugh. It's very interesting because recently in your newsletter, you wrote about checks. You wrote about the idea that having the check there, because so many individuals have donor advised funds nowadays, especially entrepreneurs that have had successful effort exits. And so much of it is related to understanding where potential donors money is and how they can give and deepening the relationship. What do you want all fundraisers to know so they don't make the snafus or wrong moves when engaging with an individual that cares about relationships like yourself? Well, I wish I could give you one answer. I'll give you a couple of answers, but really the book is full of about a hundred of those, of answers to exactly that. But I think the most important person is, most important thing is to realize and believe that the person that you were trying to get money from is a human being. I can't emphasize that enough. They are not an alien. They talk, they, they get up in the morning and when they say put their pants on one, one foot at a time, like everybody else, they got there by who knows what reason. And you can certainly research that. But I think that's one of them is realize that they're a human being, say thank you, remember basic manners, and also understand that if you ask them, how are you? Right now I've had we have an election coming up and we have lots and lots of people calling me for money, lots of politicians. I get calls at least once a day, if not twice a day. And politicians from all over the country, because we've done some work for helping people get elected, et cetera, and some, some events at our house. Never, not one time, not one day, has anybody picked up the phone and when they call said, how are you? Nobody, not one person, not ever. They launch right into, hi, I'm so-and-so, give me money. And they never say, how are you? And I think the same thing for fundraisers in the nonprofit world, ask how they are. Now, maybe people aren't asking how you are because they don't want to know how you are. Because what if the person says, gee, I'm really sick, or my kid just broke their leg. You as a fundraiser have to actually care enough to say, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Is there something that I can do to help? Or can I refer you to somebody or whatever? But I, I, I really think somewhere in the back of their minds, a lot of fundraisers just don't want to hear that answer. So they don't ask. Because I can't think of any other reason why somebody wouldn't just say, how are you? I, it's, it, it seems absolutely crazy to me. Uh, the, the second thing I think that's really important is I have something in the book that you can learn more about, but it's called the five-minute Google search. And that's that all of the records that you have and all of the information that's everywhere 
you can get exactly what you need to go to talk to any, any potential uh, donor from a five-minute Google search. At least you can get the basics. And, don't ha and, and the idea is don't let anybody else tell you that there's a certain way to do it, that you don't need to have the value of your house is the number one thing that most fundraising advisors do. That has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't tell you how much they owe on their house, so it's a ridiculous question, so forget it. Don't look at the value of their house. Having said that, I know dozens if not hundreds of fundraisers who are still today having their researchers say or doing their own research and saying what's the value of the person's home that tells me about the person that doesn't tell you about the person that is that doesn't tell you really anything but do a five-minute google search look at really what is that human being about what are they like and you will be much more successful i just love hearing because you always i mean just like you're just so chock full of wisdom and it's really cool um so my my next question is what is your advice? I mean, I know just speaking about myself, like as an executive director of a startup nonprofit, I'm so much focused on the relationship and oftentimes miss the opportunities to ask. And I know a lot of my peers are in the same boat. We're scrappy, we're just getting started and, and we're still, when we're the founders, like what advice do you have for individuals that are, that actually do care that, but right. like are afraid or like are so much more focused on their relationship, but they still have to raise the money. So this is an interesting thing. And I, I think I wrote about it in one of my newsletters, but so most fundraisers, most uh, executive directors and fundraisers, people looking for money for nonprofits are afraid to talk about money. It just makes them uncomfortable. I think there was a study that something like 75% of fundraisers don't like talking about money. I would say my first advice is get used to talking about money. Go ask a friend if you can borrow five bucks and see how that feels because you need to be comfortable talking about money. The idea of not talking about it makes the relationship really fraught because the person on the other end knows that you're asking them about money and and you should be upfront about it i am going to i have i have this one friend who is part of an organization that i'm involved in that i'm on the board of and he said we made a deal at the beginning when i first started getting very involved and he said here's the deal because we had a couple of meetings and i said i just need to know he said well can, can we sit down at lunch and i said but are you going to ask me for money and so we made a deal and he said he doesn't want me to be nervous that i had this really lovely lunch and two hours into it or an hour and a half into it it gets really quiet and they ask me for money. That's how it typically is, which then makes me think that the whole conversation for the hour and a half before, which seemed like a friendly conversation, was BS. It, it just, it, it, it's an awful, awful, awful feeling to feel like the time you just spent that you're never going to get back was fake and that someone was just doing it to get to the point to ask for money. So this friend of mine says to me, and you'll see this in the book too, he calls whenever he has a, we want, he wants to have lunch or whatever. He said, he makes, he, we made this deal. And he said, if I'm going to ask you for money, I'm going to tell you when we schedule it, that this is an appointment to ask for money. So I now know, and he does it. He's absolutely, he abides by it, has for years. And he will say, can we have lunch? And I want to let you know, I'm going to have an ask as well. And that's totally cool. But what's the worst part is when you don't know what it is and it's a surprise at the end. And I have literally had many dozens of lunches and breakfasts where I have gotten up and said, oh, it's so nice. You know, thank you so much. It was great to meet you. And I start to walk away and they say, oh no, we have to sit down. And they literally have me sit down and then start asking me about, well, you know, it's like, just ask me for it already. So I think you have to get comfortable asking for money and you have to get comfortable. You know, I, I think really the best way to do it is just role play with a friend and say, can I convince you that this is money that I need? Does this sound like a reasonable ask. And I mean, you know, I think there used to be things with like little kids in a house and the brother would ask the little sister, you know, who's going to go to mom and say, can I get 50 cents to go to whatever to buy gum? And they kind of role play it. It's like five-year-olds. So why can't 
30 and 40 and 50 and 60 year olds do the same thing. Just practice it and get comfortable and say, this is something we're going to talk to you about uh, getting involved in the organization. And getting involved doesn't necessarily mean money. So you could say getting involved financially or contributing to us, but we'd like to let you know why we think that this is something that's a fit for you. And the most important piece is if it's not a fit because you have a relationship and you start to have a relationship and you get it and you realize they are not a fit for your organization, let it go. Don't try and convince them that fit them into your organization if it's not a fit. Just say, gee, we are really, really happy. Let's say you have an animal organization and they're really into classical music and they really just aren't into animals. It's not their thing. Then you have to really respect that and say, I think it's awesome that you give to the orchestra. I love the orchestra too. That's just great. And if you ever find that you want to have, you know, broaden that or you want to come to the zoo or you want to come learn about these animals, um, please give me a call. That is a perfectly fine thing to say, but I think that's something that no one has said ever at the end of one of those meetings. Wow. And I know that you've had plenty of those meetings. I'm so excited to have gotten a sneak preview of what's in your book and following your Philanthropy 451 newsletter and being an avid reader. How do others find you? So uh, you can find me at philanthropy451.com is my main page, and that's where my newsletter lives. And from there, you can go to saving underscore giving, which is my Twitter feed, which we would love to have you come on and participate. And I, I tweet most days. And then most importantly, go on to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of your favorite book uh, sellers, and you'll be able to pre-order Philanthropy Revolution and order the book and, and hopefully enjoy it and take a look at it and tell your friends. I'm excited to do all of the above. Your Twitter feed is the comments that you make are priceless. I mean, some of, I think the most creative and witty ones in the philanthropy world. So that's definitely one of the highlights beyond the newsletter and just can't wait to, to hear your voice and the voice of so many other philanthropists in your forthcoming book. I want to thank you so much for all that you do for the world and the difference that you make in our lives and the continual impact that your book will make for nonprofit fundraisers and executive directors. And I also want to wish you success in all your worthy endeavors. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. If you know an executive director or nonprofit professional that you think I should interview, shoot me an email at bradley at growthexponential.org.